Web3 will radically reshape cyberspace as we know it, and it will have far-reaching implications for our daily lives. Hi, I'm Amy James, the Executive Director of the Web3 Working Group, and welcome back to the What Kind of Internet Do You Want Basics series, where we're talking about key Web3 topics like the differences between Bitcoin, crypto, and Web3, proof of work versus proof of stake, public keys and private keys, stable coins, utility tokens, smart contracts, and more. So please hit the like button and subscribe to the channel, and let's get into it. So what exactly is Web3? And how is it different than the web we use today? Why do we need it? Web 1, Web 2, and Web 3 refer to different eras of the web as technology has progressed. Before the web, there was only the internet, the physical network infrastructure, and the connectivity and routing protocols that allowed computers at vast differences to share data with one another. Initially, the internet was accessed through various service providers like CompuServe, Prodigy, and everyone's favorite, AOL. You've got mail. Each of these platforms gave access to the internet, but they didn't provide the user with access to the other platforms. So for instance, if you were on AOL and I was on Prodigy, we couldn't see the same content. So Web 1 began in 1990 when Sir Tim Berners-Lee released Hypertext Transfer Protocol, or HTTP, a specification that allowed links to be made between web pages and hypertext markup language, or HTML, a basic publishing language that allowed users to build web pages. Together, these innovations were known as the World Wide Web because they created a global web of information. And the web was a universal standard that allowed anyone to share and access information. Platforms like CompuServe, Prodigy, and AOL ultimately integrated web access into their services because their siloed platforms couldn't compete with the open jungle of the World Wide Web. This era of the web is often referred to as the read-only web because it functioned as an information portal where the majority of users passively received information. Typically, there was no interaction between a website and its users. It was more like a billboard or a magazine. Websites were static and very simple. They didn't have comments, feedback, reviews, or reaction. There wasn't even a like button. Web1 was decentralized not as a feature, but more as a bug. Building and hosting sites required special skills. You needed to know how to code and manage server infrastructure to put up a website. There weren't easy hosting services and publishing platforms like there are today. I mean, GeoCities came out in the mid-90s, but it wasn't exactly user-friendly like today's platforms. Web2 was an evolution of Web1. In the mid-2000s, social networks and distribution platforms like Blogger and YouTube made it easy for users to publish and share information. So Web2 is often called the read-write web because it allowed users to easily create and interact with content. There isn't a specific technical innovation to pinpoint as to when Web2 started. I mean, technically, you could always read and write with Web1. It was just hard to put up a web page. So most users only read information posted by others. With Web2, businesses got involved and built out platforms and infrastructure, making web pages more beautiful and easy for end users to both read and write. 
data no longer had to be self-hosted, but was rather hosted on the cloud. And information became more dynamic, inviting user-generated content, comments, ratings, and sharing with social media. But this also meant data on the web became centralized and controlled by a handful of companies that created these platforms. Content became siloed, similar to accessing content on the internet before the web. Just like Prodigy users couldn't see AOL content, Instagram users can't see Twitter content. The platforms control whether the content can be discovered and can even block access to it. And because the web didn't have a native value transfer protocol yet, Web2 companies were built with advertising as their main business model. And that incentive has resulted in it being normal for platforms to spy on their users so that they can provide targeted ads and sell user data. Web3 is being built now. And despite the buzzwords used to describe it like decentralized and permissionless and trustless, what does this even mean? They make it sound more theoretical than real. But Web3 is a technical innovation on par with the internet itself. Remember when people didn't understand what the internet was? Allison, can you explain what internet is? Many influential people said the internet was doomed to fail. But 30 years on, it has permeated the daily lives of most people. Today, 90% of the US and almost 60% of the world actively use the internet. Similar to the way the World Wide Web protocolized and opened up the kinds of services that were provided by CompuServe, Prodigy, and AOL, Web3 is doing the same for services provided by Web2 platforms that we use every day. Some have called Web3 the read-write-own version of the internet. Others have said it's read-write-and-trust or read-write-and-verify. What these descriptions are reaching for is that Web3 changes the incentive model and gives users control and transparency. The big innovation that marks the start of Web3 was in 2009 when Bitcoin was introduced. The technology that made Bitcoin possible is known as blockchain or digital ledger technology. And what makes the technology revolutionary is that it enables a network of computers to agree upon and maintain an unalterable record of information. And it has built-in incentives to make it reliable. With Bitcoin, this is used for financial transactions, but blockchain can be used for any type of data, applications, websites, file storage. The native value transfer Bitcoin brings to Web3 means that the incentive models that will drive economic activity will change. Advertising as the main business model for the web has preventing the web from reaching its true potential. Web3 provides users with digital ownership from independent control of their money, like Bitcoin, to ownership of digital files, like music or videos, or even real-world property records, like real estate. But the capability of ownership goes even further. It gives users control of data distribution itself. On Web3, data cannot get lost. With Web2, it's easy for data to be lost or for access to be blocked because the data is hosted on servers using location-based addressing that points to its position on the server. 
if the server goes offline or a centralized platform blocks access to the location address, or more commonly, the location is moved without being re-addressed, the data is functionally lost and users get a 404 error. Web3 technology handles data differently. Rather than location addressing, distribution networks use content addressing, where the address is derived from the content itself. And these content addresses can be stored in blockchains to create permanent, unalterable links to persistently available data. This means that there can be an unlimited number of computers storing the data and that the address to it cannot be blocked. So even if a great number of them go offline, the data is not lost. And this is a huge change because even though it can feel like once something is on the web, it's there forever, the truth is that the average lifespan of Web 2 content is just two years. Web 3 will give us permanent access to the information, history, and culture that happens on the web. The other revolutionary feature of Web 3 is verifiable transparency. Users on Web 2 platforms like Google or Twitter have no ability to know how the content platforms are filtering and ranking what they see. With Web3, anyone can transparently verify the source of information or the location of data without needing to trust an authority or even involve a third party. I'll talk more about the technology that makes this possible in upcoming videos about proof of work consensus and public-private key cryptography. But to put it simply, this verifiable transparency is made possible thanks to the universal and binding rules of math. The truth is, no one really knows what Web3 will ultimately look like, just as we couldn't have imagined Twitter when the internet was just getting started. But luckily, Web3 doesn't need to be completely reinvented from the ground up. It's compatible with all of the wonderful technologies that created the internet, the web, and Web2. So while it can be hard to imagine at this early stage, it will quickly become as easy to use as the web we have today. What we do know is that Web3 is inevitable. Despite initial friction, technology marches forward. The printing press, the car, the radio, and television have all become part of our daily lives. And this technology is uniquely unstoppable because it doesn't have central points of failure. Web3 will radically reshape cyberspace as we know it, and it will have far-reaching implications for our daily lives. That's it for today. If you're excited about the future of Web3, be sure to hit the like button, subscribe to the channel, and share the video. Thanks for watching, and I'll see you next time. Thank you.